This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Good morning. It's Thursday, November the 9th, 2023. Welcome to Now with Dave Brown. Coming to you on AMI-tv, I'm Dave Brown. Let's hit the horns and go. up on the show today, a hospital in Switzerland has developed a spinal implant that has shown positive results in a patient with Parkinson's. Marco Flalo fills you in on the details. They Shall Not Grow Old is a 2018 documentary about World War I. Michael McNeely commemorates Remembrance Day with a discussion on the film. And... Do people complain too much about parents and their noisy children? Don Dickinson explores this question in a preview of Voices of the Walrus. Thank you for making some time to spend your Thursday with the gang here at Now with Dave Brown. Let's begin with the top story of the day, and it's an update on healthcare reform in Alberta. Alberta Health Services will be dismantled and its responsibilities moved to four organizations in charge of different specialties. Premier Danielle Smith explains her expectations for the change. Welcome to a new day for healthcare in Alberta. From the very beginning of our government's mandate, improving healthcare at every level has been the top of our list of priorities. And with delays affecting the whole system, the urgency of the challenge can't be overstated. Wait times for life-saving surgeries, routine care and mental health treatment are far too long. Smith elaborates on the possible outcomes. These reforms have nothing to do with privatization. They are also not about cuts. Alberta's government will continue to grow the healthcare workforce, and we anticipate that there'll be no job losses to HS staff working in frontline positions who are de- directly delivering patient care. United Nurses of Alberta President Heather Smith thinks the policy is way off base. They've done, made the wrong diagnosis and absolutely prescribed the wrong treatment. University of Calgary Associate Professor Lorian Hardcastle studies public health policy. Professor Hardcastle has thoughts on the changes. Clearly our system is struggling right now and it isn't clear to me that this kind of massive systemic change that will throw instability into the system should be preferred over more pointed changes that target the specific issues within the system. Just to editorialize for a moment here, healthcare is obviously a really important issue inside the Canadian political and social landscape. But thinking strictly about politics here, how often do you hear about politicians moving too slowly? You probably don't need to look too much further than, say, the national disability benefit that has been bantied about for about uh, four years now with not necessarily a clear timeline for putting money in the pockets of Canadians with disabilities. You can say whatever you want about the policy of Alberta's government and Premier Daniel Smith. That's for you to decide. That's not for me to decide for you. But Daniel Smith won a majority government a couple of months ago, and in the couple of months since, 
healthcare reform, the possibility of leaving the Canada Pension Plan. Whoever says to you politics has to move slowly to do transformational change in society isn't really talking about the real picture. When politicians have a desire to move, they can. There's going to be backlash, there's going to be considerations. But just remember, whenever a politician tells you change is slow, maybe look to the province of Alberta who's uh, not necessarily moving oh so slowly. Over to the world of entertainment. The Hollywood actors' strike is over. Jason Nathanson has some of the details. SAG-AFTRA chief negotiator Duncan Crabtree Ireland tells ABC News the deal is groundbreaking. This deal is valued at more than a billion dollars in gains over the term of the contract, which is by far the most we've ever achieved. There are also protections for actors when it comes to AI that he calls safe and respectful, protections that will carry on for years to come, along with more money for actors in the streaming space. Actors can now go back to work while members vote on the deal. Jason Nathanson, ABC News. Hollywood. And, and Alex Smythe will bring this story to the round table at the tail end of the show. So you get a little bit of uh, inside knowledge or inside thoughts on the Hollywood actors' strike in about, let's call it an hour and 40 minutes. So don't go too far. Hang out and be part of this whole show. The next thing on the agenda, though, is the daily polls at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. On Wednesday, I was being a little bit of a Scrooge, a little bit of a Grinch talking about the holidays, but I asked you this question. When is it appropriate to put up holiday decorations? 17% of you said before Halloween, 8% of you said before Remembrance Day, 58% of you said, hey, before December's fine, and 17% of you said after December the 1st. Lots of really thoughtful responses coming in on Facebook at Accessible Media Inc. When we had a real tree, we put it up in mid-December. When we switched to an artificial tree, beginning of December. Decorations taken down first week of January. Appropriate or not, that's what we did. Pearly writes in, depends what I've got going on, but they go up sometime in December at mine with a Christmas tree emoji. Lori comments in, after Remembrance Day, I'd say December 24th with a couple of laughing emojis. And uh, Karen writes in, personally, I do the majority of decorating on Grey Cup weekend. I don't care what other people do. And that sentiment did get shared a couple of spaces in the comments section. Whatever makes you happy, makes you happy. Don't judge people if they're not hurting anybody. And I definitely hope that you didn't think that I was trying to be too judgy of you. I'm just a little bit, I don't know. I'm just tired of Christmas uh, popping up so early. By the time I get to December 25th, I just want it to be over. The right things are going. But enough of me being a Scrooge. Let's talk about today's daily poll. At Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. Today's topic is about public Art. A town in New Hampshire is considering a ban, a total ban on all public art. So I'm asking you this question. What value do you see in public art? A lot, a little, or none? Just so you know, Jenny Bovard is going to be stopping by in about 40 minutes to explore this question and this story with me. So I don't want to cannibalize my own opinions too, too much in this conversation. But Laura Bain, I'll start here. Public art is something that gives a city a personality, and it's also a way in which art can be consumed by the general population for free. So I definitely see a little bit of value in public art. Oh, I see a lot of value in public art, and I'll be really curious why this town is uh, making this decision. Uh, for some of the reasons you mentioned, I think it can really represent a place or give it its personality. 
you know, I think even things when we think of um, Paris, for example, we think of the Eiffel Tower, uh, the Arc de Triomphe. I think those are probably examples of public art, but certainly the Statue of Liberty in New York City. Um, and I, th I think they can also, as you mentioned, be very accessible there um, in the sense that they can usually be touched and interacted with, but also you don't have to pay to go into a museum. And it's uh, often a very unintimidating way to interact with art. But also, I think, you know, they can tell about the history of the place. And an example that came to mind for me was the reflecting pools in uh, New York mm. at the 911 Memorial. And mm. uh, when I was there, with my partner last year, you know, we found it very, um, we found it was a very emotional place and it brought to mind what had happened there. And of course there were also people who were just laughing and like, you know, getting sprayed with the water and taking selfies. So it's really sort of up to you how you choose to interact with public art. But I think we would, it would really be pretty, our cities would be boring places without it for the most part. There would just be a lot of concrete and a lot of gra yeah. glass and not a lot of grass or a lot of art. Uh, Alex, I think Laura and I are really on the same page here when it comes to the accessibility side of this, right? That art shouldn't have to be on the wall of a gallery or behind a paywall at a museum for people to experience. So that's where I, where I land on a little. I'll, I'll get a little, I'll, I'll get more into it later in the show why I'm only putting this at a little as opposed to a lot, but I do see see value in public arts. Yeah, I, I'm certainly in the same way. I'm I'm like Laura, I'm more on the a lot side just because, you know, you really notice it when it isn't visible, when it isn't around. And it, it's something you won't necessarily catch right away, but it's like after a while, if you're looking around, it's like, oh yeah, there's there's no public displays, there's nothing, whether it's interactive or tactile as Laurie, uh, Laura described, like there there really is something that it captivates the the kind of the the essence of whatever place you're in and i can think of all the different places i've been recently and even uh further uh back like when i was up in the muskoka region there were uh a couple of towns that they actually would put like group of seven murals that are very representative very iconic for the town and they would be on the side of buildings it's like that doesn't cost the the um the tourist or or visitor anything but it really speaks to the essence and, and, and the heart of that community. Or when you have like a public um, installation or, or, or piece of art that you can interact with, you can climb on, you can, you can touch, you can feel, that kind of represents the, the town, the city, what have you. It, it kind of lets you kind of connect a bit more if you're new to that, that area. Mm. Or it, it serves as a, an important landmark as well, because otherwise, as you say, Dave, it's just gray buildings, glass, and not a lot of grass around. There's a lot that can be talked about the personal history of a city as well. You were talking about museums on the show on Monday, and you talked about, uh, Nazreen was talking about music museums, and I mentioned mm -hmm. the hip-hop museum that exists in Brooklyn, New York. And even beyond the museum itself, if you spend time in Brooklyn, New York, there's all kinds of murals dedicated to the pioneers of hip hop. Like Notorious mm -hmm. B.I.G. is extremely present all over the streets and walls of Brooklyn. And Laura, I just heard an affirmation from you. I think that matters too, because if you think about the culture and impact of places around cities, that sometimes it doesn't even need to be as deliberate and intentional as say like a half a million dollar publicly funded public art display. Sometimes it can just be something like graffiti that speaks to the culture and history of a unique part of a city. 
Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I was just thinking about, you know, sort of I spoke to like the historical aspect of it, but I think also that fun aspect and that beautiful aspect. I was thinking about, you know, murals as well. And certainly there's, I think there's a tourism argument as well, because if you go to New York, you can certainly do many walking tours of uh, where you go and a guide takes you to go see different murals. But I think it also just attracts people to a place, which is, you know, Alex was speaking to that. We really notice it when you travel that you sort of go and seek out those examples of public art, whether it's just for a selfie or to try and better understand the place that you're visiting. Oh, gosh, maybe you guys are uh, uh, negotiating me closer to a lot on my vote here <laughs> rather than a little. I'm, I'm starting to get pretty enthused up in here. But let's leave it there for now and explore this again in a couple minutes with Jenny Bovard. For now, you can vote on the poll at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. You can also fire off an email. Get those fingertips fired up. Feedback at AMI.ca. Feedback at AMI.ca. You know what's really cool if you choose to go the email route? You could either include a little selfie video, or maybe you could send a picture. You could include a picture of you buy some public art that you love, right? There's an opportunity to go above and beyond and continue to offer some texture to the program. There's also the telephone. Maybe you just want your voice to be heard. 1-866-509-4545. 1-866-509-4545. Coming up next. Do people complain too much about parents and their noisy children? Don Dickinson explores this question in a preview of Voices of the Walrus. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Just so you know, the next couple of minutes of conversation are going to involve pretty frank conversation of opioid addiction. You may find that triggering. I just wanted to put a content warning on that at the top. There are a lot of connections you can make with the housing crisis in this country. For example, a few weeks ago, journalist Arno Kopecki drew the intersection between Canada's housing crisis and environmental issues. But now a recent article featured in Voices of the Walrus on AMI-audio is taking a different approach. It explores the opioid crisis and its roots in the housing crisis. Don Dickinson is the content curator of Voices of the Walrus and has more to say on this story. Hey, good morning, Don. Hey there, Dave. How are you? Don, I'm well. Uh, this first topic is a heavy one, but it's a really important one. The first article is titled, Sometimes They Don't Wake Up by Kevin Patterson. It dives into the sensitive material related to the opioid addiction crisis in Nanaimo, British Columbia. Don, what is the state of the opioid addiction crisis in Nanaimo? Well, first, let me just say that uh, Kevin Patterson is definitely um, experiencing this on a very personal and firsthand basis because uh, he practices uh, general internal and critical care medicine in the area. 
And he says that even as unemployment has fallen and the mean income actually has risen in the center of the city, there is a more visible and abject agony uh, seen when unemployment was four times uh, when unemployment was four times as high. Uh, he says that the poverty in the area um, is really defining uh, now, just as the downtown east side in Vancouver has been defined. Brightly colored dome tents are appearing in vacant lots and um, and as long as they are permitted they're also allowing them in parks as well but for nearly a year 300 people were part of that what was known as discontent city uh, which was a tent city by down by the ferry terminal and that was eventually dismantled but uh, the number of, of uh, unhoused is growing and that of course is affecting the the addiction uh, 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 crisis so go a bit deeper into the intersection between the opioid crisis and the housing crisis. Well, you know, uh, when you really think about it, I guess it's pretty obvious. The number of unhoused in Nanaimo has grown uh, tremendously. By 2020, a 29% increase from two years before. Since then, with the COVID-19 uh, pandemic, uh, much more and increasing rapidly. Officially, there are um, officially... And that's the key word, Dave. There are 650 unhoused people in a city of just over 100,000. But the pr uh, precise number is is terribly hard to know. Mm -hmm. uh, so, yeah, because basically there's a lot of people hiding in bushes. Uh, there's a lot of people, um, uh, you know, uh, just basically embarrassed about uh, going into, uh, you know, shelter situations. And they're the people that are avoiding detection. You know, they, they include seniors. And these are just not, you know, single people who are addicted to drugs, their families, their youth, their single women. It's a pretty dire situation. There's quite a bit of statistical analysis in the article, Don. Uh, you've cited a few of them here. What did you find particularly jarring? Well, you know, Dave, I don't know uh, BC like you know BC. I mean, I'm, I'm really kind of like an Ontario girl. But um, what really threw me was... Um, it, the, the, the things that the public is not seeing, you know, um, the, you know, the article quotes that there were more than 33,000 overdose calls in British Columbia last year. I, I just, I couldn't believe that number. It was amazing to me, you know. Yeah. Uh, there were 1,455 overdose deaths in the first seven months of 2023 um, and on pace to exceed uh, the last year's uh, numbers. And among children aged 10 to 18, overdose from opioids and other illicit drugs is the leading cause of death in the province. Don, it's not just a BC issue either. It very much is a national crisis when you think about opioid addiction and you think about um, a lot of a lot of the housing crisis that goes along with it. I was in Kitchener, Ontario, uh, a couple of weeks ago, and there were two tent cities around the train station in Kitchener, Ontario. I was in Ottawa for a wedding earlier this summer and uh, witnessed um, a body on the street of someone who had overdosed uh, two blocks from Parliament. Like, like we're not talking oh. about we're not we're not talking about something that that's away from public view. It was on Rideau Street, two blocks from Parliament. Oh. It's really, it's really um, jarring stuff. And I was speaking to some people at the scene that morning, and they were saying, "Yeah, this happens every day. Like, they're like, we have to call the cops out, out, out to basically this corner almost every day, or an ambulance, or or, or uh, frontline services every day. So this is a national story. Twenty people die every day last year uh, across Canada, every day 
I mean, it, it, it's, it's something that needs to have a real sincere conversation, and a lot of politicians have it in a very political kind of way. They don't really grapple with the issues of safe supply, safe injection. They don't deal with the underlying causes of the housing crisis and poverty associated with it. It's, it's a really, it, it, it's, 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 it's certainly framed in British Columbia. British Columbia can point to a couple of very jarring examples, whether it be Nanaimo, whether it be Victoria, whether it be Vancouver, but there are cities all across the country who are grappling with how to deal with this. And at this point, whether it be public health or politicians or whomever, they're, they're not even sure where to start scraping away. But I think the identification of the intersection with the housing crisis is probably a good place to start. Yeah, yeah, I agree there, Dave. You know, uh, I mean, it's a it's an obvious connection, right? If people don't have places to live, they're on the streets. I mean, you know, obviously, yeah. it's a it's a it's a dire situation across the country. I guess I guess BC gets hit a lot because of the weather, right? Cause, That's right. I mean, you know, they're out and about, right? So. Yeah, it's uh, yeah. and the, there was also there was there was a lot of thought for years that other provinces would send people on buses or trains to to go to British Columbia uh, because oh. because there was a culture a little bit more of acceptance, but but it's it, yeah it, it it it's a crisis through and through. Don, I just want to mention this on the way out of here. I'm just going to turn to camera one while I do this because I do want to mention that if you or someone you know is in need of mental health or substance use support, you can visit wellnesstogether.ca. That's wellnesstogether.ca or you can seek phone counseling by calling 1-866-585-0445. That's 1-866-585-0445. And that hotline is available 24-7. And in case of emergency, you can call 911 in case of a, a dire emergency. Okay, Don, let's take a quick breath and then lighten the mood because, I mean, that, that's such an important issue and it has to be talked about, but I think it's also fair for us to maybe try to smile a little bit on the way out of here. The next article you wanted to highlight in this episode of Voices of the Walrus on AMI-audio is called When It Comes to Kids, Many Adults Need to Grow Up by Michelle Saika. Apparently, uh, full-grown adults are having tantrums over infants and toddlers who dare to make noise. Uh, there's an old saying, there's a time and place for children, and children should be seen and not heard. But, uh, Dawn, do these still apply? Oh, Dave, boy, there's a lot of there's a lot of comments <laughs> on this kind of thing. You know, uh, I got to read you a little bit in the article. It says, uh, what is the time and place for children? Often the pro and anti child camps are split along the question of whether or not children are fundamentally annoying. Many people, <laughs> many people are quick to argue that the sound of children is beautiful and life affirming. And I guess basically you know, if you have kids, you know, or if you've had kids in the past, you know that there are times when no matter what, those kids are going to be screaming their lungs out, right? And uh, usually when they're very, very young and they haven't learned any better, right? Yeah. But to be honest, Dave, I'm in the other camp. Um, I, I really think that 
parents, particularly in public. I've had two experiences just recently in restaurants. I don't think parents are really teaching children about the difference between the voice that one uses in the home and the voice that one uses in public. Uh, <laughs> because, you know, when I was a kid, way back in the, uh, you know, uh, uh, ancient times, uh, <laughs> my mother need only look at us. I mean, you, you wouldn't even have to be told because let's face it, you know, we're British, right? So, you know, she would look at us and, and we would know that we were being loud, you know. But like I say, the last... Yeah, the two times that we've been uh, in restaurants, we've we've had to move our table because the children beside us have just been absolutely annoying. And I'm not just talking mildly annoying. Yeah, I'm talking really annoying. I'm I'm in the uh, time and a place camp. I I, I really because yeah. I because I do try to empathize. So many of my friends have kids now and still want to go and have those moments and those adventures and do things out in public. And and I get it. And and kids can be noisy. And to a certain degree, I try not to let it bother me. But I. Do I, I became very cognizant of this when I lived in Ottawa. In Ottawa, it's very culturally accepted to bring your kids to the bar in a way that was not quite the case in downtown Montreal. Maybe the West Island, maybe the suburbs, maybe that's a little bit different, but in Ottawa, it did not matter. You could be on Bank Street uh, late at night and there'd be kids at the bar and parents would be like, hey, can you keep it down over there with the cursing? My kids are here. I'm like, your kid is not 19. Your kid should be carded and thrown out of here i'm being a little <laughs> facetious and sarcastic but i do think there are certain places that are for adults i don't know the restaurants that you were at but i went to a really nice restaurant earlier this week in downtown toronto and i would have been pretty cranky if there would have been toddlers there or kids running around there because it was a nice meal and my visa bill uh, definitely reflected that uh yesterday but i think if you go to like an Eastside mario's with all due respect and love to Eastside mario's that's a family restaurant. At a certain point, like, you've got to have the stiff upper lip and say, I went to a family-friendly place. I have to accept there's going to be family-friendly noise. Yeah, okay, family-friendly, okay, but this is all a matter of definition, though, Dave, right? Family-friendly. This, These restaurants were in the in the area. One was Taylor's, about two minutes away from our office. Yeah, that's a bar. Know. That's a bar. And, uh, you know, and uh, yeah, they were just, I mean... To 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 have to ask to change tables, you know. And now what I do, and I'm gonna sound like such a grouch, but now what I do when I actually walk in the restaurant, I say, uh, "Yeah, table for four, and don't put us near kids," you know. <laughs> and uh, and the waitresses look at me with a very knowing look. You know what I mean? It's yeah. not like the I'm the only one walking in the place, you know. <laughs> and uh, as I say, you know, we've had lots of kids in our family and whatnot, but our and I'm not, you know, I'm not saying we're per our kids were perfect, but I'm just saying that, you know, they were taught that there is a difference between, uh, it, you know, the, the level of, of noise at home and yeah. when you're out in a public place. <laughs> and I think I, I, I really, I hope that parents are listening because I really think parents need an education on this, you know. Uh, like you say, you know, we're, we're paying a really good dime these days in restaurants for, for a meal. And uh, you want to enjoy the meal. 
<laughs> I Don, I get what you're saying. I, I will say uh, society and culture is also maybe acknowledged. I'm not going to call it a problem, but I'm going to call it an issue. Whereas now you have the uh, family-friendly and child-friendly movie screenings, the Stars and Strollers thing. Like there are there are things that are being done to yeah. sort of like bridge this gap, which I think is fine. And also, if someone went to a Stars and Strollers screening and was like, "There's too many kids here," I'd be like, <laughs> "Get out of here! Like, calm down over there." Anyway, Don, thank you for bringing these articles to the table. It's appreciated. Have a lovely weekend. You too, Dave. Bye-bye. That's Don Dickinson, content curator for Voices of the Walrus on AMI-audio. You can find that show daily at 11 a.m. Eastern time. So if you're listening to the audio stream at amiplus.ca right now, as soon as this show wraps up, boom, Voices of the Walrus right there for you. Coming up next... Comedian Ryan Niemiller has a new comedy special called Unarmed and Dangerous. Nick Thielen will offer up a review. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Ryan Niemiller has released a new comedy special on Tubi. Unarmed and Dangerous explores themes of disability and misconceptions from the able-bodied community. Comedian Nick Thielen had a chance to check out the special and is going to offer up a review. Hey, good morning, Nick. Good morning, Dave. How are you doing today? I am doing fantastic. So, Nick, I'm going to jump right into this. What stood out to you about this special? Well, of course, uh, having uh, performed with Ryan a couple of times, it was, you know, uh, he's a great storyteller. And what I love about Ryan is his um, his ability to really, you know, we put personal stories in there, but also kind of give the uh, give the audience sort of a lesson about how to treat people with disabilities. Um, you know, he talks about uh, going through a, a drive through, for example, and people uh, sort of thinking, you know, He's like, well, you know, he comes to the drive-through and people are are worried about whether or not he can handle the food and take it in the car. He's like, I drove here the entire time, you know, or or people will sign to him and and you know try and communicate with him that way. And it's like, well, we've been talking the entire time while I ordered, you know. So uh so uh but also I I, I just love his ability to to tell stories and um you know he's got some really funny stories there about uh you know traveling around the US and uh, for example going for barbecue and uh slipping and breaking his ankle on a sandwich so some pretty unique oh uh, stories and experiences that are are uniquely his um uh and and that make it you know like only that he can do it basically um, yeah, it, which it, I really loved. It, it should be mentioned that uh, Ryan has a limb difference uh, with 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 his arms, so mm-hmm. hence hence the unarmed and dangerous uh, moniker on the special. And Ryan, uh, uh, Nick, I'm sure at this point it, it's pretty common for comedians with disabilities to be exploring misconceptions around uh, around disability. How did Ryan make it fresh? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, I think he really. Um... He he, I love for example his his closing bit where he was talking about uh, 
getting a getting a job that required him to uh, get fingerprinted and uh he goes into it and he he says like the lady asks him what finger is this and he says well i don't know i was hoping you could tell me right uh so he has fun with it too uh and you know like i i like that he sort of educates people about disability and it's he's like he mentions like it's not like we know each other from the convention or something like that we don't all get together and just hang out or know each other um but yeah um also talked about things like uh like the holidays and how uh every every uh, holiday halloween for example he has to dress like industrial accident wolverine and you know uh, thanksgiving when they do the hand turkeys um it, it made a, a unique experience for him as a kid growing up and and not having the same limbs as everybody else and he realized you know i'm, I'm kind of different that way but also some pretty funny funny moments just talking about like working at a at a, at a walmart and he's like i'm only making 720 an hour right now I, I like you're you're lucky i'm wearing pants so uh so you know i really enjoy kind of the 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 mix but i also enjoy like the just the storytelling and and how he's really i think when you look at it there's probably about three or four stories in there and to be able to talk about these three or four things for you know 45 minutes and really keep the lab really consistent high volume in terms of like even throwing in little um what we call like tags in terms of like you know uh <laughs> little little additional laughs after the first big laugh then it's really a kind of a skill that i i pay attention to personally is trying to get the most laughs per minute is kind of what we <laughs> talk about uh and try and I guess as a as a comic, we always try and you know get the audience uh, audience gives and and I'll, it was pretty it was pretty neat to just um, see Ryan's way of of working with all that. So, Nick, you mentioned that uh, you had a chance to perform with him last weekend or open for him last weekend. How uh, how was he feeling now that the special uh, dropped and was available on Tubi? Yeah, I mean, I think he's pretty excited. Uh, he's also um, recently had a had a child so he's been sort of navigating the the world of being a new father and uh you know recently fairly recently married so he's just sort of uh it i ended up talking to him during the pandemic and he said it actually kind of worked out for him because he was able to you know normally he's he's busy all year you know uh traveling and, and performing but with the clubs being shut down he took it as an opportunity to to move move uh, locations and then uh, start a family. So uh, that's amazing, I think, and uh, yeah. Nick, your uh, internet connection's a little spotty here. Not your fault, it's it's the internet. It's it's it's, it's an evil being, but just on the way out of here, yeah. what, what, what's your final impression, your overall thought on Unarmed and Dangerous? Oh, I, I, I love Ryan's comedy. I highly recommend you check it out. I also think he was on, he was on uh, America's Got Talent. So if you'd like to check out more of his comedy, he was on America's Got Talent and America's Got Talent Champions. So a lot of his the content is on there. And he was he got third place on America's Got Talent. So uh very, very talented comedian. And I'm I was privileged to be able to share the stage with him. So um great opportunity. And I highly recommend that uh 
anyone who loves comedy, check out Ryan's new special. Fantastic. Nick, have a great day. Thank you for this. You too. Thanks, Dave. Have a great weekend. That's Nick Thielen, a comedian based in Alberta. Unarmed and Dangerous is available to stream on Tubi. You know Tubi. It's a free streaming service. T-U-B-I. In 60 seconds, Alex Smythe has the weather story of the day. But first, here is Canadian press reporter Karen Rebo with your Morning Business Minute. Canada's main stock index edged lower again yesterday, led for another day by losses in energy. Toronto's TSX index lost 45 points to 19,530. New York's Dow Jones average gave back 40 points, and the Nasdaq crept 10 points higher. In Tokyo this morning, the Nikkei index surged 1.5% after Prime Minister Fumio Kishida had told local reporters he had decided against calling an election before the end of the year. And our dollar is trading overseas this morning at 72.52 cents U.S. Martin Ray International says net income for the third quarter was $53.7 million, up from nearly $36 million a year earlier. The Toronto-based company says the United Auto Workers strike in the U.S. did not have a significant effect on the company's third quarter performance, but will have somewhat more of an effect on fourth quarter results. And after four long months, Hollywood's Actors Union has reached a tentative deal with studios to end its strike. From the the Canadian Press Business Desk. I'm Karen Rebo. And don't worry, in about an hour's time, the roundtable will explore that Hollywood actor strike coming to an end. In fact, Alex Smythe is going to lead that conversation just like he's about to lead the weather reports. Alex, people in British Columbia have lots of raincoats and all the rain gear in the world, and they're going to need it for a couple of days here. Yeah, Dave, uh, this new system that uh, we're going to be focusing on started yesterday and it basically worked its way along the coastline. It's been bringing rain or snow and strong winds, depending where you are along the coastline. If you had higher elevations, you're going to expect it to be more in snowfall. But if you're in lower elevations, it's going to be taking the form of rain. Unfortunately, too, this is going to be part of a multi-band system. So it's going to be a few days of constant rain and wind on and off. And it's, it's a bit ugly out there along the coastline. So the first system, as I said, started last night. It's expected to continue until tonight into the early hours in the morning. Unfortunately, there's not going to be a whole lot of relief because then starting on Friday morning, another system is set to come in. So uh, what we're really paying attention to is the strong winds along the coastline, especially in areas like Haida Gwaii. They could see upwards of 100 kilometer per hour winds. Uh, it's going to be more tempered in the metro Vancouver area where you're going to be seeing wind gusts up to 60 kilometers per hour. Overall, this weekend, parts of the western and northern tip of Vancouver Island, they could see upwards of 100 millimeters of precipitation by Saturday. So that just kind of shows the, uh, the, the overall precipitation rates, the amount of rain or snow that that area is going to be uh, getting over the next few days. So unfortunately, it's going to be wet and windy for the next few days if you're out on the West Coast. November in British Columbia is very moist. Thank you for this, Alex. Coming up next, Littleton, New Hampshire is considering banning all public art. Jenny Bovard and I will consider the value in public art. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv.
Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Littleton, New Hampshire is considering banning public art. A town councillor complained about a mural at a public meeting this summer. Town manager Jim Gleason decided to contact the city's lawyers about the possibility of restricting art in certain public places. The consultation is ongoing and a complete public art ban remains a possibility. The town has not cited specific grounds for the restrictions, but a lot of the public discussion has centered around art with 2S LGBTQ plus themes. Discrimination against those themes would invite constitutional lawsuits. That's where the full ban comes into play. Jenny Bovard has some thoughts on public arts, and so do I. Jenny is the host of the Low Vision Moments podcast. Good morning, Jenny. Good morning, Dave. So, Jenny, as opposed to asking you a really leading question to start, what's your general reaction to this story out of New Hampshire? I have so much to say. I don't know how to say some of it either, but I will do my best. In short, Dave, the story has left me shaken. I am shook. The thought that something as, it seems outrageous to me, uh, an all-out ban on public art, something that like this is actually being, being considered as a result of a member of town council's re religious views. One person complained to launch this whole campaign, this whole thing. Uh, it nearly made me fall out of my chair while I was having my morning coffee. And Littleton, New Hampshire, is has been called a politically purple state. So, like politically, they're divided down a town rather. They're they're politically divided down the middle, right? There, you've got half the town supporting uh, Republican and half the town uh, voting Democratic. So, not only that, but it's it's only about an hour's drive from Quebec. Mm -hmm, so, mm -hmm. it worries me that if this kind of thing can be considered, if it could potentially happen there. It could happen closer to home as well. And, you know, the art in question you mentioned in Littleton, it is gorgeous, by the way. It includes uh, some some trees and some beautiful flowers. One of them depicts a beautiful rainbow theme. These things subtly allude to 2S LGBTQ plus themes. And, you know, even if that weren't the case, I feel like criminalizing art at this point in human history is it's downright cowardly, if I can use that word. And I really feel for the people of this town. And I I feel for the people who want to get rid of it, too, because what inside of you is 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 so against beautiful art? Mm. I, I want you to be able to enjoy it like me. It, it becomes a flashpoint of the broader cultural war. Jenny, you mentioned closer to home. There's actually a small town in Ontario, in southwest Ontario, that went through something similar this summer, where in an attempt to limit art that had an inclusive message, they just said, you know what? No pride anything. We're just not doing pride anything. The city was sort of go, or the town was going for what I'd labeled a desired agnosticism to say, well, we're not going to support or we're not going to support anything because that might make somebody uncomfortable. Inclusion might make somebody uncomfortable. But the way that I begin to interpret that is it ends up becoming very exclusionary. That to simply say we are going to ban any kind of art display because it might be divisive doesn't get at the root of exclusion versus inclusion. It simply allows the exclusionists to win. It allows the status quo to maintain. And the one 
thing that I'll always push back on this notion of desired agnosticism, because again, if, if, if some town says, we are going to be completely neutral on everything, we are going to have no personality at all, okay, that's your choice, but I better not see any Christmas decorations. I better not see any Halloween. I better see no nothing. Because if you're going to be agnostic, you have to be truly agnostic. I, I know it's a little controversial, it's a little abstract what I'm getting into there, but I do think that's maybe what gets lost in this conversation, that if this was truly about, uh, about agnosticism, then that would be fine, but this is actually about exclusion. It, it really is obvious to me that it's about exclusion. But when I read this article like you, I started thinking about how who gets to decide what's inclusive, who gets to decide what's offensive and 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 what is art what is public art anyway? Is architecture not design and, and public art? And can't mm. we get ideas and and discussion points? from all different types of, of public art, right? How it, it's so difficult to define. And I think art in public spaces, like not only does it aesthetically beautify our cities and towns, but it can also really instill that inclusion and feeling of belonging and community. The mural in Littleton, like I said, it, it is titled, We Belong. How can anyone be upset about us wanting to include everyone and make everyone feel like they belong in society. If you remove culture, you're removing so much more from, from our society and from our cities and towns. And they can, these murals, these sculptures, they can provoke thought and discussion about what's happened throughout history. Mm. You know, what is your favorite color? Perhaps their identity in every sense of the word might come up in discussion. But for the most part, it's, it's about beautifying and and enjoying our space and and that goes for residents and vis visitors alike yes everybody wins in this situation and i really struggle to see the negatives in my own neighborhood it's hard, you're hard pressed to find an electrical box that hasn't been decorated with some kind of beautiful flower or message that says something like spread your magic or you know there's a big beige wall in my neighborhood that was recently painted with a mural that says believe what does that mean believe can be anything <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> jenny i i like that you identify a couple of those examples because i also think about public art as being both implicit and explicit in developing a city's personality uh you talked about sort of murals more specifically but you also mentioned mentioned infrastructure and architecture a couple of examples from my old hometown of montreal quebec is when they built their subway system the montreal metro they deliberately said we want to create each individual subway station as some kind of artistic feature. Uh, we're going to throw a couple of images up on the screen here in a second. One is of Lionel Gru metro station, which is where the orange line and green line intersect. And it's very simple what they did, Jenny, but they simply just put different colored tiles on the floor. Small little shapes of yellows, reds, and orange that makes that metro station stand out from anything else. If you go a little bit further down the green line to Peel Metro Station, they put fixtures on the wall of a multitude of colors. And it's, it's, it's just a circle with a multitude of oranges and yellows and reds inside that circle. And to me, what that does is it just does these little 
teensy tiny things that makes a city feel different and makes every little piece of the city feel different as well without necessarily saying, oh, this is a huge artistic endeavor. It's just something that gives you a little bit of texture every single day. Yes, and if, if we're walking down a subway line every single day, our environment really has an impact on, on how we feel, right? If I'm looking at the same stuff every single day, it's gray, it's beige, it's boring. Like, why not put a splash of color in there and maybe make somebody smile or maybe make somebody's, uh, you know, brain have have a new idea that they might not have thought of. The, you described this subway line, and it makes me think of the in Las Vegas at the airport. There is a little tram, and there was this gigantic wall covered in children's art that had been put up there semi-permanently. And it just is such an, you know, it's an encouraging thing for the, for the, the kids, the adults of tomorrow, to give them, you know, the idea that they might be able to do something big like this in the future and have their talent shared mm. and have their art shared with the world, right? It, it has so it has such wide-reaching impact when you really, really think about it. Jenny, not to turn this into a Montreal-centric conversation, but you also came across some public art that really struck you in Montreal with uh, Leonard Cohen. Yeah, that's right. There is an enormous leonard cohen mural in montreal and i was there a few years ago with my husband and some family and yes they had to point it out to me that it was there and yes i had to take my phone out and zoom in to get a better look at it but it is just so cool it is on the side of a building and it is in black and white very sort of classy monochromatic um, lots of high contrast, though, as well. So if the lighting and everything was right, I could even appreciate that from a distance. Jenny, if I made you the czar of art, how would you make art, public art, more accessible to the public broadly and people with disabilities more specifically? Well, Dave, I think I just thought of a new word, and it is zart, the <laughs> czar of art, if you will. <laughs> That's why they pay me the big bucks around here. But <laughs> honestly, there's so much that we can do. And I think that a lot of these things are already being done. First of all, murals tend to be very large. So as someone with low vision, I can often appreciate them. Um, that being said, being able to get up close and, and take a look up close is very helpful. No uh, velvet ropes, please and thank you. Let's make sure to put these things in accessible spots. So places where people with mobility devices and wheelchairs can access. When we talk about architecture, something that I've seen in Europe, and I might have mentioned this to you before, Dave, but when it comes to architecture, if you have a model outside of the building, a tactile model that those of us who are blind or visually impaired can get our hands on, we can better understand the beautiful details of that architecture mm, in that mm -hmm. building. Something I saw in Cape Breton that I think should be on every every mural, every sculpture, every every piece of public art is a QR code. I love a QR code. A QR code that takes you to a, a text and audio description options. These are little things that are very doable that I think would just 
open it up to even more people. Jenny, I also just think that the notion of public art implies free, and I love the idea of free. And on the way out of here, I want to give your your town a little bit of love, Halifax, Nova Scotia. This is music, not necessarily like a visual arts, but there were a series of free concerts right in the downtown core when I was there a couple of years ago for a bachelor party. The music just drew us into that stage in the middle of the city, and it was such a cool experience. So yeah, keep it central, keep it accessible, keep it free. Oh my gosh, your city's going to be better for it. I couldn't agree more. Those concerts are a common thing. They're like noontime concerts downtown, and it happens a lot throughout the summer. So it's not just sculptures. It's not just murals. You can't define public art very easily. It's a Mm. lot of different things. And I don't think it's going anywhere anytime soon. So good luck, Littleton. I don't think you're going to have much luck. (laughs) Hey, Jenny, thank you for this. I really appreciate your insight on the issue. Thanks, Dave. That's Jenny Bovard, the host of the Low Vision Moments podcast. Just punch that into the search bar on your favorite podcast platform, and I assure you, you will be delighted. The Low Vision Moments podcast. In one minute, Laura Bain has the entertainment report all about the Country Music Association Awards that took place last night. But first, Meta is putting policies in place ahead of the next American election. Mike Dubusky tells you about them in Tech Trends. Russell Wald is the policy director at Stanford's Institute for Human-Centered AI. He says there are very few guidelines for using AI-generated content in campaigns. Who is setting the rules of the road is the campaigns themselves. Now Meta, the parent company of Facebook and Instagram, says it will highlight political ads that use digitally altered imagery, video, and audio. Meta says it's targeting ads that show real people saying or doing things they never said or did or depicting events that never happened. Wald says it comes as trust online appears to be on the decline. I think we're in potentially the last days of where we have any confidence in the veracity of what we see digitally. With Tech Trends, I'm Mike Dubusky, ABC News. Thank you very much, Mike. If you want to dive into a really interesting conversation about uh, deep fakes online and journalism, Jesse Brown of the Canada Land podcast did a great conversation with Glenn McGregor on that. It just came out this morning. That's what I listened to on the way to work. So more stuff for you to check out as the day moves along the Canada Land podcast with uh, Jesse Brown and Glenn McGregor shortcuts today. Excellent. Top tier. Over to the world of entertainment. The 57th annual Country Music Awards took place last night. Laura Bain, you've got a couple of the highlights and we both have a couple of opinions. Yeah, that's right. And uh, thank you for clarifying for me that it's Country Music Association Awards because I <laughs> thought it was Country Music Awards and everyone was going around redundantly saying CMA Awards. <laughs> so that just shows my ignorance. But, oh, Laura, um... <laughs> don't don't worry about it. This is a branding thing. You'll get me going for hours on end about branding. <laughs> But yeah, I did check out some of the highlights this morning, and I I know you did as well. And many of the performances paid tribute to Jimmy Buffett, Mm. uh, who, of course, passed earlier in the year. Um, And, you know, something I felt when I was watching that is just, while there's such a sense of community in country music, you had a lot of sort of veteran performers. I guess I'll use that word, like Tanya Tucker, um, Alan Alan Jackson did an awesome version of Margaritaville during the during the show. Yeah, like pairing up with newer uh, newer performers to, uh, so I thought that was really nice. And I don't know if you get that so much in other genres, but 
Lainey Wilson was the biggest winner of the night. Uh, she took home five awards, including Entertainer of the Year, which made her the first woman to win in that category since, guess who, Taylor Swift won in 2011. <laughs> <laughs> and I think we have a clip of her from the awards. Mm -hmm. For all you little girls watching and, and for the ones that are here tonight, too, it's something that I'm doing. I, I'm getting up every single day and I'm looking at myself in the mirror and saying, I am beautiful, I'm smart, I'm talented, I'm godly, I'm fearless. If somebody tells me I can't do it, hold my beer, watch this. Yeah, that was, I thought that was nice. I wasn't a huge fan of her single Heart Like a Truck, which I listened to last <laughs> night, but I did I did really enjoy uh, all of her, you know, acceptance speeches that I, I watched. And uh, Luke Combs won single of the year with his cover of Tracy Chapman's Fast Car. And I know this is a song that we have divided feelings on, Dave. So mm -hmm, we've mm -hmm. got a clip. Let's uh, give that a listen. So I remember when we were tired so laura uh, as you mentioned you and i have a little bit of a divided feeling on this this was the number two uh, billboard song of the entire summer the first time i heard it i was like how dare you steal tracy chapman's song uh, i later found out that uh, tracy chapman uh, gave luke combs total approval to do this i also learned a little bit more about luke combs because me and country music we're still kind of uh, figuring each other out i'm a very recent convert i thought luke combs was some pretty boy uh-uh-uh, this is like a veteran uh, country music musician. And he. Re I saw a live performance of this and I saw the emotion on his face and I was like, you know what? Okay, I'm in, I'm all the way in. I love the song, I love the version. I'm here to support it. So I, I'm a big, big fan of this song, but it didn't quite resonate with you the same way. Yeah, I mean, maybe you're going to win me over. I don't know, but um, yeah, I probably had that same feeling when I first heard it, which would have been over the summer, and I haven't really warmed to it. I kind of feel like if I was, oh, I, I'm, I don't want to make some enemies here, but if I was if I was at a bar and the band got up and they did this, I would be like, yes, that was a good cover, but I don't know if I feel like it's strong enough to be single of the year. I also mm. feel like, you know, when I, I went back, I listened to the Tracy Chapman original. I feel like what people are loving about that is the song which was written by Tracy Chapman more so than maybe the Luke Combs cover. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, Tracy Chapman uh, did also receive some recognition last night for being a writer on yep. the song, which was great, and did send a representative who expressed her gratitude as well. So again, I, I think that gratitude matters. It's funny, you asked me that question yesterday about lawsuits around music and how that might mm -hmm. change my perception. I, I, I don't know if this is exactly the same, but when I did learn about Tracy Chapman endorsing this cover, that did that actually did change my perception on the song. So maybe, I, maybe, I, maybe I'm not as intellectually consistent as I'd like to think of myself sometimes. Yeah, and I did want to highlight that that actually, um, so because it won Best Song, that made Tracy Chapman the first black songwriter ever to win in that category at the Country Music Association Awards, which mm. was was cool. Um, I just know when a song gives me chills and when it doesn't, and the original gives me chills and the cover, 
I don't know, maybe makes me want to dance at a bar, but not a whole lot more than that. Laura, one last thought on the way out here. Uh, Chris Stapleton won Male Vocalist of the Year for the seventh time. Uh, Chris Stapleton is my gateway into country music. That's where it all started for me in 2017. He's got a voice just like Chris Cornell of Soundgarden. I, I just, one of the things that I like about country music is the party, but then on the flip side, there's a very natural, organic soul to it, and I think Chris Stapleton is the representation of that soul. Yeah, I think so too. And I got really into Chris Stapleton a couple of years ago. And for me, it comes down to, I mean, he's talented. He's talented vocally. He's talented in terms of the music, but also it's the lyrics and those lyrics that really get you in some of his songs. Not not all of them, but some of them that you go, ooh, yeah, like mm-hmm. I got to hear that again. So yeah, that would have been that would have been my pick probably for Entertainer of the Year, although it was nice to see it go to a woman for Absolutely. sure. Absolutely. Hey, Laura, thank you for this. Thank you for indulging in a bit of country music for me. I appreciate it. Anytime, Dave. <laughs> That's Laura Bain with the Entertainment Report. Just before I get to break here, I want to remind you about an interesting opportunity for you to be part of a live studio audience. AMI is putting on a live taping of Kelly and Rumia on Monday, November the 27th. It's my understanding there are still a couple of tickets available, but they're running out fast because only 50 people can be part of the audience. Scarcity. So if you live in the Toronto area or are going to be in the GTA on November the 27th, you should email to confirm your participation, info at ami.ca, info at ami.ca. Like I said, space is limited, but there are some perks beyond just catching an awesome edition of the show. Spending time with Kelly and Rumia is always a good time. But if you attend, you receive a Kelly and Rumia gift bag. Everybody does. You get a Kelly and Rumia gift bag. That's fantastic. And your name is going to be entered into a draw to win one of two Apple gift cards valued at $500 each. You could buy a whole bunch of lightning cables until they phase them out. You could also win one of five $50 Tim Hortons gift cards. You could send me some double-doubles in the morning. I'd appreciate that. The only way for you to win is to be part of this live studio audience on November the 27th. So just a reminder, if you want to be part of this, you've got to send an email, info at ami.ca. Coming up after the break, it's the regional news update. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Another opportunity for the horns. Getting double horns today. You're excited. I'm Dave Brown. It's Thursday, November the 9th, 2023. I will leave out the crass joke that I could have made. Coming up in the second hour of the show, a hospital in Switzerland has developed a spinal implant. The implant has shown some positive results in a patient with Parkinson's. Marco Flala will fill you in with the details and... They Shall Not Grow Old is a 2018 documentary about World War I. Michael McNeely will commemorate Remembrance Day with a discussion of the film. But the hour begins with the regional news update. 
Beginning in British Columbia, the British Columbia government has tabled legislation to build more housing near public transit. Housing Minister Ravi Kalan says the legislation creates a framework for local governments to build near transit hubs. It will mean more people are encouraged to use active transportation and where more homes are just a short walk away from grocery stores, daycares and libraries. And of course, short steps away from SkyTrain to get to work and get home. The government estimates the transit hub legislation could result in the creation of up to 100,000 new homes over the course of the next decade. Over to the prairies, Saskatchewan is raising the legal age to buy tobacco and vape products from 18 to 19. A bill passed by the provincial government follows decisions by other provinces in raising the minimum age of tobacco sales to align with liquor and cannabis sales. It also provides more clarity to existing restrictions on advertising and promotion of those kinds of products to young people. And in Quebec, Quebec public sector health... We can do that. We can do better than that. Quebec public sector workers have started a two-day job action in the health sector. Nicole Reese has more. The FIQ, which represents 80,000 nurses, licensed practical nurses, respiratory therapists, and other health professionals, and the strike is affecting the majority of healthcare facilities across the province. Essential services are being maintained during the 48-hour strike, but the health department says some non-urgent surgeries could be postponed. Unions rejected Quebec's latest contract offer, a 10.3% salary increase over five years, and a one-time payment of $1,000 to each worker. Labor unions are demanding a three-year contract with annual increases tied to the inflation rate, two percentage points above inflation in the first year, or $100 per week, whichever is more beneficial, followed by three points higher in the second year and four points higher in the third. Nicole Reese, The Canadian Press. And just a little bit more context on that, that job action started late yesterday in the afternoon. It continues through today into early tomorrow. And finally, in the Atlantic provinces, Newfoundland and Labrador has announced a poverty reduction plan. There will be an expansion of a supplement aimed at low-income families with children. The child benefit tax will also increase by 300%. The plan includes a basic income program for residents aged 60 to 64 who are receiving social assistance. Premier Andrew Fury says the three-year plan will be phased to streamline the provincial income support system. And this topic will come up tomorrow on the news panel with Michelle McQuig and Joita Gupta. For now, let's move to the world of sports to chat with Brock Richardson. Okay, starting in the world of hockey, the Ottawa Senators bagged the Toronto Maple Leafs 6-3 last night at Scotiabank Arena. Sends forward Claude Giroux notched two goals. Giroux really liked how the team played. We want to be consistent and play the right way. And, uh, you know, coming here on the road, uh, you know, it's a great opportunity to kind of come together and do that. So uh, it definitely feels good. But at the end of the day, like... Uh, we're happy with the way we played. I mean, win or lose, obviously it's a it's a league of results, but um, you know we played the right way. Leafs captain John Tavares said the opposite vibe from how his team played. Just too many mistakes that uh, you know gives a team like that uh, a lot of skill and speed, the opportunities to make some plays and execute. So um, 
just uh, obviously uh, have to cut down on the mistakes and, and just the level of detail we need consistently throughout 60 minutes. Leafs coach Sheldon Keefe referred to the number of goals scored against the team as, quote, out of control. Brock Richardson, say what you want to about the Toronto Maple Leafs, but they play barn burner hockey. There's no doubt about that. Yes, they do. And they also give up a whole mess of goals on home ice. I think they're up to 38 goals on uh, home ice this year now, and it's just too much. Um, Joseph Wall, listen, you left him out to dry yesterday. Yes, there was some situations where you would think goaltender, you would think, you know, okay, you should have saved that goal from for Toronto's perspective, sure. But there was a lot of defensive lapses, as uh, John Tavares mentioned, and these need to be cleaned up. Listen, the Ottawa Senators came out last night and said, we need to win this game. We are being, we're being booed off of home ice the other night in Ottawa. Fire DJ Smith, our coach, was being chanted in the stands. We need to come out, and that's exactly what they did. And Toronto fell flat. Um, one positive shout out that I will give is that William Nylander continues his real hot uh, point streak: thirteen games, thirteen points. This is good. Uh, a lot of the questions yesterday, uh, Dave came up with this whole. He's on a contract year, which means that he is going to, at the end of the season, be on the end of his contract and become a free agent. Do you buy into the whole players play better when they are on their last year of the deal, either because they want to sell themselves for their organization that they're currently at or for others or a combination of both? Uh, there's empirical evidence that can go either way on this. There's players who typically struggle in contract years and there's players who uh, will excel in contract years. Some people really uh, play well under pressure, some people don't. There was a very infamous Montreal Canadiens team in 2008-2009 that had about 11 guys who were on contract years throughout that year, and you could tell they waved the white flag in the middle of that season because they wanted to go into business for themselves. So I think as a collective, you don't want too many guys on contract years, but as individuals, players that you know, I think you can understand where they're going to go for, William Nylander is in the prime of his career. He's what, in his, he's in his mid to late 20s. He knows his next payday is going to be the big one. There are rumors that he's asking for about $10 million a year. The way that he's playing so far this year might uh, necessitate that kind of contract mm. out there on the open market. But there's a flip side. There's Tyler Bertuzzi, a player who signed a one-year contract for the Toronto Maple Leafs last summer for $5.5 million. And he's having, he scored a goal last night, but he is having a dreadful dreadful season that might cost him money going into the free agency next year. So I, I, I don't think there is a singular universal rule on this, Brock, but you definitely don't want too many one-year contracts on your team because that pressure might not help guys make broader team-focused decisions. Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, you could also place the argument or some teams and organizations would place the argument and say, yeah, well, it benefits us if if they have a contract year and if they play really well. But it also inhibits you, as you mentioned with Tyler Bertuzzi. He's just, it's not working. It's not happening. Uh, and and it can go both ways. So for me, I, I, I do understand the theory, but it's not like I walk into a situation and go, oh, William Nylander is going to have a 13-game point streak just simply because he's on a contract year. I do think there is more skill to that. And it being, as you mentioned, in the prime of his career, I think that has more to do with it than the contract itself.
He also plays uh, with some pretty darn talented players around him. That'll that'll help too. Okay, Brock, let's let's round up what's going on around the National Basketball Association. The Toronto Raptors are on a winning streak. A two-game winning streak, but a winning streak nonetheless. The Raptors outgunned the Dallas Mavericks 127-116 last night. Brock, your thought on the Raptors game? This is the kind of Raptors game that leads me to believe in the potential. Would I like to see them have better first halves? Sure. Uh, they they really come out sometimes a little bit flat-footed, and but they are able to dig it out. I got to shout out. Pascal Siakam, who had uh, 27 points last night and played really, really well. This is a guy who has been, you know, kind of beat around in Toronto a little bit. And sometimes we like him, sometimes we don't. Uh, OG Ananobi coming off the bench, looking really good last night too. 25 points, just really an outstanding game from him. Gary Trent Jr. defensively played amazingly. Had a bit of a situation where he was uh, called for a quote-unquote flop where the Dallas Mavericks defender uh, was suggested that um, uh, Gary Trent flopped when Gary Trent didn't exactly fall to the floor. So what happened was the the offensive player hit Gary Trent, Gary Trent went down, put his hand on the court, and the referee called it for a flop. So these are the kind of inconsistencies you can see in, in basketball. But overall, I would say this is a really, really good game for the Toronto Raptors coming off of that San Antonio Spurs game where they were down by a whole mess going into the second half. So this is the kind of thing. But their next game against the Boston Celtics is another real test. And we're going to see what is this team really made of. Four and four after eight games, 500. I would say that's exceeding expectations. But a couple of stats to put the Raptors into context on the way out of here. They are 26th in pace of play. They play real slow on the offensive side of the of the uh, of the court. 22nd in turnovers. So even though they play slow, they're giving the ball away a ton. 30th in three free throw percentage. Uh, that means they're not scoring the easy points. Now here's the flip side, Brock, and you just talked about it. Defensively, they are seventh place in defensive efficiency in the league. So they're an excellent defensive team, and that's a credit to the players on the roster. Brock, thank you for this. Have a great day. You as well. That is Brock Richardson at the AMI Sports Desk coming up after the break. A hospital in Switzerland has developed a spinal implant that has shown positive results in a patient with Parkinson's. Marco Flalo will fill you in with some of the details. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Here's a story that intersects technology, medicine, and disability. A 62-year-old man with Parkinson's disease is walking again. This occurred two years after he received an implant that stimulates nerves in his spine. The story is coming out of a university hospital in Switzerland, and Mark Aflalo has a few more of the details. Mark is the co-host of Access Tech Live, and Mark is in Montreal, Quebec. Hello, sir. Hello, sir. How are you today? 
Mark, I'm great. The story is really interesting. I'm always I'm always keen yeah. to sort of understand the biomedical and technology field and the intersection. Let's start with the spinal implant itself. What is known about the implant itself? Well, it's still in its experimental phase, so they're calling it an experimental device. They're actually calling it a neuroprosthetic. And what happens is it delivers small electrical pulses to the spinal cord with the goal of improving mobility for patients with advanced Parkinson's. So there's two parts to it. There's an electrode that's placed against the spinal cord and an actual electro electrical impulse generator, lots of words here, um, implanted under the skin near the abdomen. So that's that's the device itself. Why the spine versus the brain? So much of the conversation about the biomedical and technology field has focused on the brain of late. Why the focus on the spine? So when we think about the brain, typically implants in the brain are designed to create the impression of sensory information. So someone who, for example, might have lost a limb and no longer has the nerve endings in that area, the brain can stimulate certain areas to make it seem like you have those senses. So, in you know, it basically tells the brain that something is going on. Now, in this case, they went with the spine because they wanted to focus on actually activating the leg muscles for walking. The patient himself, you know, it wasn't the problem wasn't getting the message from the brain to the muscles that said, hey, go ahead and walk. That was working fine. It was the actual motor function in the muscles that needed to be stimulated and need to be stimulated for actual walking, hence the spine and the muscles itself. So what are some of the results from the testing so far? So uh, incredible results. I mean, he's walking up to six kilometers. The implant itself um, has been insane. Here's the cool thing is what, what happens is, is the, imp the implant itself maps the patient's spinal cord. So it knows the exact locations in the spinal cord to send the signal to the muscles to actually move. And it adapts to what the patient is actually doing. So the sensors in the legs will then communicate back and forth in real time in, in time that you and I couldn't even measure, allowing him to actually walk again and get those little electrical pulses from the spinal cord to the actual muscle itself to get those muscles working, which is absolutely insane. And not only does it adapt, but it also learns from its previous experience. So depending on what it's doing, when it's doing, it can actually learn and adapt so that as he gets stronger and is able to stimulate those muscles, it can actually learn and continue going. There's all this talk about uh, intelligence in technology. I, yeah. What you're describing at the tail end there is what I would identify or label as intuition, right? The technology is actually <laughs> adaptable in real time. The technology has a sense of intuition. That really fascinates me about the prospect of biomedical accessibility and disability. Yeah, and I mean, and that raises all the questions about, you know, um, you know, is it more like a human because it's actually being able to, to sense these things? But really, at the end of the day, there's not much to worry about here because it's programmed to read all this information and it's programmed to take that information and and alter its own algorithms in the process. So it really is somebody who has designed and programmed this to adapt to this particular user's case. Obviously, you know, we talked about, you know, being two years before he's able to walk again. It, it took that amount of time to map the movement of the spinal cord and, and the impulses. So can you imagine when it comes to a brain, mm. the minute mapping and details that needs to go into it? It's absolutely insane. Staying with the theme of technology and medicine, a group of Waterloo-based workers have created a chatbot. It's designed to answer questions about breast cancer. Now, obviously, Mark, a chatbot is never a substitute for a doctor. But what does this chatbot provide? 
So it's called askellen.ai, and, and what it does is it lets users interact with, um, uh, you know, an, an AI person that has the tone and experience of a specific breast cancer survivor, Ellen Winters Robinson. She recently wrote a book, so they've fed that book into the AI model, and they've trained it. And based on that, it's able to respond to questions and actually engage in conversation designed to offer support, information about breast cancer. Of course, it also draws on the knowledge from the book. Um, it adapts to the user. So if it's talking to somebody that it realizes is a bit younger, it doesn't have to give too daunting of information or too complex of information. It's able to answer in the, in the proper tone. And really it's designed to be a resource for people to imagine almost like a search engine that you can interact with on a human to human basis. So if you have emotion that it's conveying or you're trying to ask hard questions, it can actually be there, obviously not to substitute a doctor, but to give you access to that information in a way that's a little bit more contextual than someone who might be, you know, a stiff kind of, you know, doctor with a tie on kind of thing. Mark, another edition of Access Tech Live hits the airwaves on the vast network that is Accessible Media Inc., AMI-TV, in one hour and two minutes. What do oh, you have lined up for this afternoon's program? Um, very, very cool stuff. We're going to be talking about prosthetics, and we're going to be talking about the intersection of this kind of stuff and how it kind of fits into accessibility. Greg Westlake is joining us. We're going to be talking to a company, Autowalk, and Mike Buckley is going to be with us from Be My Eyes because he was at OpenAI's conference earlier this week, and mm. there's some really cool announcements that came out of that that specifically affect their app and what they're doing. Excellent. Mark, thank you for this. Have a lovely day out there in Montreal. Have a great show. Thank you, Dave. That's Mark Flalo, one of the co-hosts of Access Tech Live. You can catch that show noon Eastern time at on AMI-TV. You can find The Pulse on AMI-audio on the weekends. Joita Gupta is going to continue her three-part series on profiling the 2023 inductees into the Canada Disability Hall of Fame. This week, she chats with Paralympian and politician Michelle Stillwell. That's The Pulse weekends, 2 p.m. Eastern time on AMI-audio. Of course, you can... Find The Pulse on major podcasting platforms and YouTube. Coming up next, They Shall Not Grow Old is a 2018 documentary about World War I. Michael McNeely commemorates Remembrance Day with a discussion on the film. But first, here is Paris, the Parasport update with Greg Westlake. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Hello and welcome back to the Parasport update. I'm Greg Westlake. We open the show on the sun-soaked Mediterranean shores of Barcelona, Spain for the NEC Wheelchair Singles Masters and ITF Wheelchair Doubles Masters Tennis Tournament. Kelowna's Rob Shaw and his doubles partner Heath Davidson of Australia entered the quad doubles main draw. In the opening match, the duo defeated Maseric of Slovakia and Silva of Brazil, 6-4, 6-3, before falling to Lapthorne of Britain and Wagner of the United States. Shaw and Davidson qualified for the finals against the Dutch duo of Schroeder and Vink. In the finals, the Dutch pair seized the title, winning 1-6, 1-6. Next up for Rob Shaw is the Para Pan Am Games as he joins a team of six Canadian wheelchair tennis athletes jetting to Chile. The largest tennis team ever at a Games features Anne-Marie Dolanaire, Barry Henderson and Natalia Lanucha making their debuts, while Thomas Venos and Mitch McIntyre return with Shaw from Lima 2019. In France, Canada's women's sitting volleyball team landed for training ahead of the 2023 Sitting Volleyball World Cup, taking place in Cairo, Egypt, spanning from November 11th to 18th. The World Cup acts as a qualification opportunity for Canada's men's and women for the Paris Paralympics, and the winner of the tournament secures that spot for the Games. 
And that's our time for this edition of the Parasport Update, presented by AMI-audio. Check back next week for more news from the world of adaptive sports. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Remembrance Day is this Saturday. There are going to be ceremonies all across the country. There will also be a wide variety of programming on platforms for you to access and engage with. One in particular is They Shall Not Grow Old, directed by Peter Jackson. The 2018 documentary is streaming on Netflix. It was created using original and unseen footage from the First World War. Michael McNeely has seen it and was moved by it and is going to offer a bit of a review. Michael is in studio alongside his intervener, Jill. And just before we jump in, a reminder that as we are talking about war, a lot of these themes are going to be quite mature. Hey, good morning, Michael. Good morning. How are you? Michael, I'm good. Uh, these kinds of films are important ones, but this one you hold proudly in your collection. Why is that? I think this film represents the power of film in general as an archival tool to sort of restore the images and to bring them to the present day in a new way so that people will be amazed and surprised by that footage, as well as remember that footage. What are some of the stories and perspectives that are being shared? The stories and perspectives that are being shared are primarily the British foot soldiers' experience. And you may ask why we're talking about British soldiers when we live in Canada, but the fact is that Canadians also had similar experiences to the British foot soldier counterparts. The only difference is that we had to travel across the pond. So, ultimately, the British soldiers were more or less um, trained in the UK, and then they were shipped, frankly, less than 21 kilometers in some regards, to France to fight in the trenches and to Belgium. And so our Canadian counterparts also had those kinds of experiences as well. Peter Jackson said that he wanted to highlight the stories of Air Force workers um, the nurse corps and women in the home front. But alas, he needed to focus on this to ensure that the movie was finished. And so that's why we only have the British perspective. Peter Jackson is someone who has done a lot of really amazing work with technology to restore film. What tech did he use to restore this footage? He did a lot of different things. And it's important to remember that Peter Jackson is wealthy, and he has access to resources that many of us would not. He is also an avid collector of World War I memorabilia. So he has tanks and machine guns in his home, and he used those in trying to recreate the sounds that we hear in the movie, but we'll talk about that in a little bit. I think the first thing is that there were videographers, there were cameramen, during the trenches in World War One, I. I don't think enough of us actually know about that. Those video archivists basically filmed what they saw. They did not do any fighting, so it wasn't like Vietnam with that footage. But they saw the preparation and the men marching into the trenches. That footage was often used for propaganda and, of course, was black and white and silent. So one of the things that Peter Jackson did was that he hired professional lip readers, as I'm hoping with deaf people, because we need jobs too. 
Um, he hired those people to read the lips of what they were saying on the footage, which is just mind-blowing to me. And then they hired actors to basically say what those people were saying on the line. And the effect is just surreal. It's, it's like making those people like you and me today. Go deeper into that. What did those visuals add to your experience as a viewer? One of the interesting things is that Hollywood often stereotypes World War I fighting has taken place in the stormy dark night. That's far from the truth. It's France we're talking about. France has some pretty good weather, and that was not the, that was not the uh, exception then. People were killing each other in broad daylight. People were fighting in some of the best weather they've ever experienced. And if you want any more idea of what the hell of war was like, I think that's basically it in a nutshell. No one would ever be able to enjoy a sunny day again, because it would just remind them of fighting and dying. Um, so that's one of the visual aspects. It's, you know, it's not like a dark and stormy night. That's too cliche, and it's too, it's too, it's not giving the viewer enough, enough, um, I guess, enough credit to understand that we fight in every day. Um, and that, that the visuals also that we're looking at the screen, there's visuals here that the uh, producers are giving us and the editors. Um, we can see the real life people, we can see them moving, we can see them walking and talking and being afraid. And as Peter Jackson himself said, most of these people died. So it's it's so well knowing that uh, the footage that you're watching are some of the people's last days on Earth. You mentioned the dialogue component of sound. How else was Jackson leveraging sound in storytelling? So one of the interesting stories I like to share is that there was a, a common piece of footage for the last, you know, 50 years that showed a corporal or a general giving a speech to his, his men, and basically half of his mouth was covered, like I'm doing with my hand, because he was holding a piece of paper, so nobody knew for the longest time what was being said. So Peter Jackson said, okay, I'm going to deal with this right now. And he researched the regiment. And in an amazing bit of detective work, he went to that regiment's archives. He matched the date of the speech, and he found the speech in a note. And he basically wanted to test it out. So he read the speech while watching the man read the speech to see if both of them were happening at the same time. And then he found a place where the man was talking, because, of course, it wasn't the whole speech. And then he got a British actor to read the speech in that regiment's voice, because he, he recognizes, of course, that the entire UK has different accents. So I just—I am just astounded by this, but I also want to remind people that Peter Jackson does have the resources to do this. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, not all of us have the resources to do this, but we all should, because, as we mentioned before, um, all these uh, archive pieces are getting old in, the, in museums that may not—no offense to the museum creators, but they're not filmmakers necessarily. So they don't have the resources to, you know, digitally polish these films. Yeah. But we need to, because that's the only way we're going to save them. Along those lines, 
what's the importance? You you alluded to this a couple of times now. The importance of preser preserving these histories beyond just books and photographs. I was talking to a friend yesterday on Facebook, and I realized that she doesn't she doesn't quite read as well as I do, or she doesn't quite understand the written word as well as I do, or maybe I'm just a bad communicator. But I, I spoke what I was saying to her, and she understood what I was saying, because I think she could hear my tone, and she could hear my nuance. I think that's what's missing from these things. The, we have textbook descriptions that people think are probably dry. They're not, but that's just a stereotype. So I think what we need to do is we need to be confronted with footage and color and with sound and with all the bells and whistles to get people to care. And it's not a criticism of the people, it's just, you know, different modes of communication are required at different times. And this is, we need, you know, we need to have something to cater to the younger generation, especially if we want to get them to care about, you know, their great-great-great-grandfathers. Mm-hmm. You ended up watching extra footage, stuff that didn't even make it into the documentary. You ended up watching bonus production from the documentary. Why do you recommend others check that out as well, beyond just the movie itself or the film well, itself? It was, it was behind-the-scenes footage that Peter Jackson always does. You know, Lord of the Winds has probably 45 hours of it. Um, and it's just, you know, if you want to know what goes on in the filmmaker's mind, why he does the things that he does, and he's just a great speaker. Peter Jackson is—he actually says he's not a historian, but I call BS on that, because I think he is a historian. I think he's just also, you know, buying into that, that a historian writes papers, the historian publishes books. But that's not—that's not what a historian is. A historian is someone who actually cares about what happens in history, and obviously Peter Jackson cares. So I think that's just— you know, perhaps filmmakers, such as people in our audience, will, will learn something from Peter Jackson or they'll be inspired by Peter Jackson. Michael, thank you for this. Have a nice day. Thank you. And um, I think one of the last things that Peter Jackson wanted all of us to do was just to research our history. And I think that's a good, good moral for today. Yeah. That's entertainment critic Michael McNeely with a review of They Shall Not Grow Old. You can find that on Netflix. You can also get it on demand to rent on iTunes or Prime Video. Remember, this Saturday, November the 11th at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, AMI is going to have some special Remembrance Day programming. So 10 a.m. Eastern Time this Saturday, November the 11th, AMI-TV is going to be having special Remembrance Day programming. Coming up after the break... The Hollywood actors' strike is over. So Alex Smythe will bring that conversation to the round table with myself, Ms. Rain, and Ramya. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. In one hour and four minutes, Access Tech Live hits the airwaves of AMI-tv. I'm going to do some quick math here, but by my calculations, in three hour and four minutes, Kelly and Ramya hit the airwaves for another edition of Kelly and Ramya. And Ramya can give you a preview of what's coming up on today's show. Good morning, Ramya. 
morning, Dave. That's good. I wasn't even trying to do the math. Oh, but, it, uh, it, I, I, but midway through that, I put myself into a position <laughs> where I thought to myself, Dave, you know you're not good at math. What are you doing? Yeah, we can barely do the math we need to to record a one-hour episode of AMI Audiobook <laughs> Review. Real-time stuff out here. So, anyway, on today's Thursday edition of Kelly and Remia, we are talking to Chef Mary Mamaliti. She's going to tell us how we can creatively repurpose uh, repurpose uh, food that we've already made, meals we've already made. This is mm. obviously to save some more money and enjoy leftovers more maybe uh also on our accessible gaming segment we have marcus mccracken talking to us about a family-friendly game uh that he says is very kid-friendly but he's also been enjoying it as an adult so he's going to tell us more about that and then mike fair on uh tech and entertainment we're going to talk about the new airpods to come out from apple and what the changes are uh, repurposing food. I bought a lot of uh, brunch over the course of the weekend that came with a whole right. mess of breakfast potatoes. There have been a lot of breakfast potatoes in my life being repurposed into uh, yeah. a lot of a lot of frying pan and a lot of uh, pots and pans on my uh, stovetop this week. Very potato heavy diet this week. No mm-hmm. doubt about that. No judgment whatsoever. I love breakfast potatoes and potatoes in general. Yeah, just any, anything potato. Anything olive oil, yeah. anything potato, as, <laughs> anything as, potato. You, as you pointed out yesterday. Oh, speaking of an update, uh, Alex Smythe, you brought this conversation to the table yesterday about cooking oils that we use. I, and you asked me, Dave, is it extra virgin olive oil in your, in your kitchen? Because I just told you I buy whatever's on sale. <laughs> it turns out that it is indeed extra virgin olive oil, at least on the label. But it's uh, sourced from multiple places. So it's not real. E-V-O-O. I thought you would want that update, Alex. Thanks, Dave. I, I definitely do appreciate it because that's the thing. It's just it's the most common one out there that everyone seems to have in their kitchen, whether or not it's as valuable. Who knows? Well, until I run out until I run out of it and then I'm just going yeah. and buying vegetable oil. You see, the wheels of journalism never stop on Now with Dave Brown. I'm always <laughs> I'm always following up on these important conversations. Okay, you heard Alex's voice. Ramya's here. So is Nazreen Abdel Majid. Alex, you've got some news out of the entertainment world. Yeah, that's right, Dave. You've already uh, mentioned it earlier in the show, but we're going to dive into it now that the Hollywood actor strike is officially over as a tentative deal has been reached between the union and the studios. Jason Nathanson has the details. SAG-AFTRA Chief Negotiator Duncan Crabtree Ireland tells ABC News the deal is groundbreaking. This deal is valued at more than a billion dollars in gains over the term of the contract, which is by far the most we've ever achieved. There are also protections for actors when it comes to AI that he calls safe and respectful, protections that will carry on for years to come, along with more money for actors in the streaming space. Actors can now go back to work while members vote on the deal. Jason Nathans and ABC News, Hollywood. So the strike in total lasted over four months, and now the actors can finally get back to their productions. But the first thing I, I kind of thought of when I, I heard the news that, okay, a deal had finally been reached, it's whether or not, you know, I really have been impacted at all by this strike in terms of the, the entertainment available and things like that. So I want to bring that uh, that question to the round table. So Nisreen, let's start with you on this. Have you felt the impact at all from this four-month Hollywood actor strike? I really didn't, um, mainly because I don't keep up with new shows. I watch old shows that are like months uh no not months like seasons long that i can start from the beginning and it takes me time to get to the end right so i don't wait for okay the next week i wait for a new episode and the next week i wait for the next episode i don't have that type of patience because sometimes i like to binge and i hate waiting so um 
you know, that the strike really didn't impact me in the sense of I have to wait for a show now. So I, I, I really didn't feel it. I totally forgot about it, to be honest, until you guys mentioned it. So. There, there's, sort of this, <laughs> there's sort of this distinction between notice and perceive, right? Mm-hmm. That maybe there's a lot of chatter around it, but you're not going to feel it. It's one of these things that you might end up feeling on a little bit of an echo or a little bit of a delay. Maybe not Nazreen. She's too busy watching the Golden Girls. But maybe the rest of us might feel it's a little <laughs> bit more than an echo or a delay, uh, just in the sense of the amount of production time that was lost over the last four or five months. Uh, For example, shows like The Summer I Turned Pretty. There's someone in my life who's very concerned about how long it's going to be till a new season comes out because of the actor's strike and the writer's strike. So it's something that might end up bubbling up more down the road than in real time. But I'll tell you, I was super excited for Denis Villeneuve's Dune Part 2, the uh, science fiction movie, to drop this month. And that's been pushed into the spring or the winter because uh, because of the writer's strike. So Alex, it's one of these things where I've kind of noticed it, but like maybe not super noticed it. I've just been watching a lot of football, so that's been keeping me busy. Ramya, what about you? Yeah, yeah, it's so individual. Like if you're consuming content that was quite obviously affected, affected for months, like the late night TV, the live stuff, um, then you were going to notice it right away and you were going to notice it and be, you know, checked in on it this way. But for Nisreen and I, because I'm on the same boat as Nisreen, I was always just way behind in TV shows. I was watching things that were already completely out. Uh, The other thing is, though, Dave, it's kind of what I felt around the pandemic with TV shows where I was anticipating something happening, whether it it be like distributors or um, curators like Netflix uh, and maybe feeling the effects of what is going to happen with my bills, like my subscription services or what's going to happen. And that's the delay and echo you're talking about as well. I'm not sure if that stuff is going to be affected now or if it was affected through the summer, but it may be affected moving forwards because of all the time we lost, all the changes that are happening, um, the kind of new regimes that we're seeing. So I'm I I don't think this stuff is done, clearly not, even just to get to an understanding of negotiable. There were a lot of um, moving parts yeah. and back and forth. And then there was stuff going on where, you know, the, they were like, hey, no costumes for Halloween uh, and set some rules around that. And people were backlashing. So I don't think we're on like handshaking terms still. It, it, I think there's still a lot more to come with the strike, even though technically the strike is over. Yeah. And so well, again, no, like, no, yeah, knowing that it has to be ratified, right? Like the, yeah, like yeah. the actors yeah. still have to accept this to, to make it a full blown deal, but it does Absolutely. seem like the, so you are un- still wasting time. Yeah. So, so spending time. <laughs> wasting time, spending time, <laughs> Note, <sorry>. noted anti-labor <laughs> activist, Ramya, I'm moving no, no. over there. Uh, <laughs> Flip of the wrong word. <laughs> uh, Alex, again, I, I, I yeah. think that, again, notice versus perceived. Uh, if you watch yeah. a lot of network TV, you would have noticed it this fall because of the amount of reality TV shows, the amount of Masked Singer, the amount of Golden Bachelor, Bachelor in Paradise, like all of that uh, delightful smut, as some people like to call it. <laughs> yeah, and you mentioned Dune Part 2. Like, that's one I'm eagerly anticipating. But you, you think about it, that film was completed. It was ready to go. The reason why it got delayed was because they couldn't do the promotion mm-hmm. around it. So mm-hmm. I think there's there is going to be yes obviously a delay on some of the projects that were in development or hadn't started filming yet, but there's also quite a few of them like Dune that made that call that hey, you know, we're ready to go, but 
we we need to wait for the actors to come back because we really want to give it the best chance to succeed. So I think there's going to be initially you're going to see like a lot of these film projects that are done start to pop up that you're like, oh, I forgot this was like coming soon. And you're going to see that that initial burst of, oh, this entertainment's been waiting. Now we can promote it. Now we can get it in theaters. And then it's going to be that that lag a couple years down the road because making movies takes time it, it can take a couple years from when you start filming it to when it actually comes out so it's there's so many different projects in various stages that it's going to the impact is not going to be as immediate or clear as when the writer strike ended as Nisreen and Ramya mentioned where you see them on TV the following Monday yeah that's right that the late night TV talk show hosts were back uh, pretty much instantaneously you know it's the difference between a uh, daily live programming which the four of us have absolutely no concept of. Uh, we never are involved in daily live programming versus uh, bigger projects. Alex, you nor I have ever made a documentary. No, no. we've <laughs> Those just happen, right? Those just automatically happen. There's no wheels of production at all for a documentary. Yeah, absolutely, Dave. You know, it's just, uh, it's immediate. I, I think it, and then it's there. Yeah, the yeah. content fairy just waves a wand and content magically appears. That's how these things work. Alex, that's uh, how they had to deal with AI. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you know, that's, Ramya, that's an interesting point because one of the tension points here was artificial intelligence and a lot of Obviously. actors being concerned about uh, essentially deep faking, right? Like using my image, my likeness, my voice, and deep faking me in a lot of stuff and taking job opportunities away. Uh, to me, just finding some kind of understanding has to be the biggest win in this negotiation for the actors. Ramya, even though some of the details are still being ironed out here, to me, like, that is the biggest hinge point in this conversation for these actors. Yep. Oh, it 100% is, Dave, because even all the stuff you were just joking about with waving magic wands and getting content out there, that is what's happening. That is the possibility that you don't need the people anymore because everything can be done with AI. So much of the production, so much of the time uh, that you can catch up on is and, and, you know, push content out is AI and is machine learning and is getting bigger and more seamless. So, of course, this is something they have to deal with before it's just too much of a phenomenon for anyone to fight about. Uh, Nazreen, your thought on the AI side of this conversation? To my brain, that's the biggest uh, win for the actors in this negotiation. What do you think? I think so, too. I feel like it's expanding, it's advancing, and uh, it is a benefit now. Alex, last thought goes to you. You've got about 30 seconds on this. What, what do you think the biggest win is? I, I'm a bit torn. AI is a huge one, but I also think the uh, you can't understate the streaming uh, of royalties, for lack of a better word, that you get from it, because streaming and repeats are going to be huge, at least in the next little while as productions ramp up again. So I, I think that can't be understated. Yeah, and that, that's those are some of the granular details that need to shake out here a little bit as well to know exactly what that new financial structure is going to be. Yes, there are more dollars, but how exactly those get deployed matters in a big, big way. Okay, that's it. That's all the time there is for the show today. Don't worry. Things begin again tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. Eastern time. It's another edition of the news panel. That topic of Newfoundland and Labrador revamping social assistance programs will be up for debate with myself, Joita, and Michelle. Until then... I'm Dave Brown reminding you to play safe, play fair, but don't forget to have some fun. Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv.
Join me every couple weeks for the Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther podcast, where we learn about outdoor tech and tips. Plus, we look at news affecting the environment. AMI's Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther is available from your favorite podcast provider.